Um, we are at point seven, which is a description into the depths of evil. And um, it, it's interesting, we, uh, we, a lot of us knew this is the doctrine of reversionism. Uh, and we saw it as a sequence of uh, steps into blackout of the soul and to uh, just totally turning everything around backwards. Now, that is not necessarily involved the totality of our being. People can can make a mistake in one area and then um, and be doing fine in another area. And if they don't stop that one area, then it's going to continue to get worse and it can spread into other areas. We're going to see part of that and where that came from tonight as we look at some of these steps and try to uh, analyze them, remember them. And uh, this thing, is, is it making them racket again? This is off. All right. I'm going to shut this down, George. Okay, and then Reese turn those two off. Still have it? Hear anything? Reset button. All right. The uh, the first point here is circumstances of life test the believer as to whether to respond in a positive way as though it's a test or to react in a sinful way or a human good way and fall prey to the temptation. Now, that's brought out by the, the Greek word peirazo. Peirazo is a word translated to test or to tempt depending on the context. And sometimes it's hard to even determine from the context how to correctly translate it. So I think it, in a lot of ways it looks at both of those. Now we used to call this a reactor factor. That was a terminology that we used for it because something comes into your life and you've got to deal with it and make a decision on it and how do you handle it. And so we're, we're going to be tested to do the right thing, leave it in the hands of God, or we're going to be tempted to do the wrong thing and to uh, uh, head in the wrong direction. Now, when we make the wrong decision, we're open for... Let's do it again, isn't it? 
when we make the wrong decision, we're open for discipline. So obviously, if we make make that wrong decision, we want to get it corrected and identify it and find it. Hit the... Uh, mute on the system on my mic alright mute my mic it's still doing it isn't it alright turn the main power down on the right I think the levers to the right are the main better, isn't it? I don't think it's this mic that's causing the problem. Turn this up if we need it. Not really. Um, test one, two. I don't know what it is. Alright, I'll try to talk over the static. <laughs> um, anyway, the word payrod though is is uh, a test or temptation in how we how or what our decision is and how we respond to this this issue in our life. Uh, tells us whether whether we've done it right or wrong. Is have we seen it as a test? Have we seen it as a temptation? We have a opportunity to worry that comes into our life, and so do we turn it over to God or do we worry about it? It's a test to trust Him always, but are we going to trust man? Are we going to trust ourselves? Are we going to look to human solutions? Or are we going to look to God? So. This is the, the first uh, step, and they call that a payrazzo. Now, the next one is failure to pass tests can lead to attempts to find happiness through other means. It can become a frantic search. We knew this as frantic search for happiness that consumes one's life. And I think probably Solomon is about as good an example of that as you can possibly get. Here is a man that you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he, uh, he had the money and the wherewithal, and uh, he said he used to ply his mind with wine and come up with new ways to be happy. 
And he said his conclusion is all is vanity and striving after the wind. So whenever a person sets up a wrong goal to try and make them happy, and we've been through that chart multiple times, we've lost our significance and security at the fall, and we try to regain that. That's a normal human uh, reaction to try and get those things back. Adam was ruler of the world. And he was secure in the love of God. But when he sinned, he rebelled uh, against God. Then he is, uh, he's been demoted. He's been kicked out of the garden. He needs to have somebody clothe him because he's not capable of clothing himself. He faces all this discipline that, that goes along. And so what does most people want to be? Just happy. If you ask people on the street, what would you like to be? Most of them will say, I just want to be happy. Translated, I just want to have peace in my mind. I want to have the things that go along with it. And what it amounts to is there's a, there's a hole in all of us, and we call it the God hole. And we're either going to fill that hole with God or try to fill it with something else. And if we're trying to fill it with something else, then we're going to be uh, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. I guess we could sing sing that song if we wanted to. But this indicates that if, if something we re- react to something and we head in the wrong direction, it can open things up to a much broader um, madness at life, anger at life, bitterness of life. It can open that up. Tests are going to make us better or they're going to make us bitter. Okay, If we flunk them, fall prey to the temptation to look to ourselves, we're going to end up bitter. And that's all there is to it. If we look to God for the answers, look to His Word for the answers, then the tough times will make us better. They may not get easy. I mean, the cross wasn't easy. Uh, What a lot of the disciples faced was not easy. But it did uh, produce the best that it could produce in them. It produced a life totally dependent on God. Now, often as a form of divine discipline, the problem intensifies okay you start worrying about a problem okay you start trying to fix the problem the problem doesn't get any better it just gets worse and that's part of this reactor factor intensifying we call that intensification of the reactor so we we find this if if you even set a goal for peace you just don't you have peace. You don't want to worry about anything and your goal is to have no more worry in your life whatsoever. A lot of people try to get that way through alcohol, through drugs, through recreation, through movies, through television, any number of things. People try to uh, find something that will fill this void inside of their soul. Now this can lead to believers governed by harmful emotions driven by the sin nature, and that can spread to every area of life. Second Timothy 3 is our prophecy of the last days. And that uh, we used to call this emotional revolt of the soul. Because what happens is when we stop thinking objectively, trying to think objectively, to do things God's way, to analyze them and do them His way objectively, our emotions take over. And if we're not careful, they 
take over and every area of life gets affected. If we read 2 Timothy 3, we find 18 things in the first four verses. And it says, In the last days men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and uh, disobedient to parents. And it just goes on and on and on about all the different things that mankind will become. And they can become all of those things unless they stop and take a break and and decide they're going to uh, figure it out and try to make uh, corrections in, in the road. Now, when sinful emotions and their resultant actions take over, the Word of God is given less and less consideration. And that's one of the things that you could see. I find it interesting that, you know, not a lot of people decide to show up tonight. Well, I don't know what's going on in their lives or in their souls or anything, but... You know, when you push the Word of God out of your life, things are just not going to get better. That's, that's the bottom line. When you think you know everything there is to know inside of the Word of God, when you got all the answers, when you think you can deal with all of life's problems automatically without replenishing your batteries and recharging them. I mean, we got rechargeable batteries in this thing, and I guess they're some. We got to recharge our batteries from time to time. We recharge them spiritually by spending time with the Lord and His Word. Now, I just got back from a conference in Dallas, and Second um, Peter chapter two was actually brought up in the conference and uh, brought up by Dr. Dave Anderson. He's the president of Grace School of Theology out of Houston. Uh, that's the location that uh, Kelvin is going to and working on another doctorate down there and he's doing it long distance the um, but the topic was first john and there are two views of first john uh, the calvinists believe it is a test of salvation and a lot of other arminians believe that too that it's a test of salvation that because they believe there are things that you have to do in order to be saved now you remember the context of 1 John, it's 85 A.D. Everything's written except 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. The rest of the New Testament's been written. All of Paul's writings are done. Paul is dead. Peter is dead. James is dead. Uh, John's about the last man standing in the, in the 12 apostles, the way it is. Now, <clears throat> and when we read 1 John, we ask, is it a test of, of salvation or a test of fellowship? And if you read verse 3 and 4, you find out it's about fellowship. He opens a book up with fellowship. Now, once you become a family member, then you're part of that family. You know, genetically, you're, you're part of that family forevermore. Now, the fellowship may not be real good at times. Well, that's what this book is about. How do you have fellowship with God in fellowship with one another. And that's the basic premise of, first, the, of the book of First John. Now, there's big arguments over whether or not it is the test of salvation. Uh, that's viewed by the Lordship people and the, the Covenant people, the Calvinist people. They believe it's a test of salvation. But being a test of fellowship, most there are a lot of people that say, and even some good Baptists that say, if you're really saved... You wouldn't do that. 
Yeah. That's not going to do it, I don't think. we got a problem here. Hold it. How's that? Test. See, that's a pay rod though. Okay? It's an opportunity to respond. I could take that Makaira and go chop that sound system into pieces. And I'm not sure if that would be the right response or not. <laughs> See? But if I chopped it into pieces and dismantle it, we probably still have that sound going on in here because the reactor factor would intensify. Then I could get into a frantic search for happiness. See, I could start looking for other ways to blast this out, looking for other ways to record this uh, Bible class. So whoever's listening is going to have a lot of fun with this thing anyway. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you could say that. That's a test. Is it irritating anybody else besides me? I mean, that is making all that racket. Okay, well, it's my test then. I'll own it. And, um, you know, <clears throat> what we had... <laughs> Yeah, it sounded like chalk on a blackboard to me. Uh, yeah. Anyway, First John is talking to us about fellowship. And if we were to read First John, we get to verse 7. It says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are groups now within uh, doctrinal uh, people, within you know pre-trib, literal translation, all that, that are saying you don't have to confess your sins. Okay? You just put your faith back in the Holy Spirit. You don't that you didn't, confession of sins not needed for the believer. Now, on the other side of the coin where people will say, if you confess your sin, then you're 100% filled with the Holy Spirit instantaneously at that moment in time. And both issues have some problems when it gets down, when it gets down to it. Now, <clears throat> how do you walk in the light? How do you keep walking in the light? Okay? You confess your sins. They're both in the same context. That's, that's what you do. Are you going to get them all? No. Should you spend four hours a night trying to figure out what you did all day long so you don't miss one? No. Don't do that. Spend time in fellowship with God, with your life, walking in the light, wanting to please God in everything that you do. And what happens is along the way, you know, hey, I messed up there. I call that driver a bad name or whatever it is. And you confess that sin and, and you do move on. If you have harmed somebody overtly, you apologize to them. You know, it's just part of being a, a reasonable, good Christian is really what it is. So here is this um, uh, question. If a person was really safe, could they commit certain sins? Because a lot of people, even good Baptists, say, oh, no, real Christian, if they were really saved, they wouldn't do that. They couldn't do that. Well, Second Peter 2, 20-22 is one of those passages. And if you get into exegetical study, which is part of what's gone wrong 
in the church, people have gotten away from the original languages and exegetical study, then if they were to study this exegetically, they would see how clear it really is. In 2 Peter 2.20, it says, If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Gnosis, okay, they know who He is. They are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Now he's saying a person can be saved. They might have been bad morally, everything wrong in their life, bad morally, they got saved. They tasted the kindness of the Lord. But then they turned around and went backwards. They reverted to their old ways. That's where this concept of reversionism came from. It's a believer acting like an unbeliever. Okay? So it says, the, worst states become, the last states become worse than the first. A believer who turns his back on the Lord can become worse morally than he, than he was before he got saved because he's not dealing with the power of sin. The penalty for sin has been paid for, but he's just given up dealing with the power of sin. So, it says it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, Dr. Anderson said not to have known the way of righteousness. Did they really know you're saved by grace through faith. You're given the righteousness of God so you can stand in front of a holy God. Did they really know justification by, by grace through faith? Romans 3 and 4, did they really know it? This word, having known the way of righteousness, is the not just gnosko, it's epigenosko. And it's not just epigenosko, it's a perfect tense of epigenosko. He's saying these people fully knew the way of righteousness. There is no stronger way to say that they were believers than, than this right here. They knew the way of righteousness. They fully knew the way of righteousness. And then having known it, aorist participle, they knew it at a point in time in the past. They were believers. They were saved by grace through faith, saved eternally. To turn away from the Holy Commandment delivered to them. What's the Holy Commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. So they, something happened in their life. Okay? And they got mad. They got mad at God. They knew the way of righteousness. They knew the Christian life. They knew the Christian walk. They knew they were saved. And they turn around and they said, Goodbye. I'm out of here. God, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You know, we've, we, have, we are made in the image of God, but man's been trying to make God in his image ever since. That's what it amounts to. We are made in the image of God. We do not have the right to try and make God in our own image. And that's, that's where a problem comes in. He says, It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. A believer can go back into a worse condition than they were before they were saved, and that's what that verse is teaching. Now, when... Yeah? Well, an Arminian will, but if he were to fully go through this verse, 
after they have escaped the defilements of the word, the world, by the knowledge. So the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's an it's an intimate knowledge of who He is, and that's how they escaped them, because that goes with the rest of Scripture. They're not saved because they escaped them; they're saved because they know Him and His power let them escape. Right, right. And so he's saying that a believer can turn around and just be more evil, wicked, mean, and nasty than they were before they got saved. Okay? If they get mad at God and turn away from it. Why does Hebrews 12:15 say, See to it no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it the many be defiled. Somebody gets mad at God, they're going to hurt a lot of people in the process. And... Um, Sadly, a lot of uh, Christianity is promoted, I think, without realizing in a, a prosperity gospel. Okay, You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You're going to gain SG2, blessings in time. You're going to gain all this, these things, and you're going to you know, feel happy, healthy, and terrific, and God's going to take away every sorrow. Well, He may not take away the storm out of our life. That is the doctrine of look at Jesus. <laughs> okay? That's really what it is. Sometimes He calmed the storm. Sometimes He calms us in the storm. And usually it's the latter, not the former. So, <clears throat> when when people start letting their emotions go to the, sin le- to the sinful level, you know, anger can be righteous or sinful angle, anger. All emotions are neutral. It depends on how they're addressed. So if it's unrighteous anger and it continues on, that unrighteous anger can spread to everything else. With the result, you get mad at God for not fixing it. God, why don't you fix this world situation? You know, there's a lot of Jews right now that are mad at God because they think He's a monster for letting the Holocaust happen. They don't even consider their their... Uh, divine discipline that they got for turning their backs on Him for 2,000 years almost, that's not even factored in. It's a wake-up call. And they, a lot of them blame Him. And so they're mad and they don't even want to talk to people about Him because they still got a, a mad on, if you will. They're still really upset. And they're, they're in emotional revolt of the soul. They are rebelling against God on an emotional level, not an intellectual level. Now, as rejection of God's Word increases, so does the vacuum in the soul, bringing with it emptiness. That's taught in Romans 1. Romans 1 says, Even though they knew God, and these are the people that the heavens declare the glory of God, He has been seen by what He has, been, what he has made. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. That's a word that means empty. They started thinking about things and thinking about things in a non, uh, uh, non-theistic non way. Uh, I, I, I heard a guy on... Uh, well, I'll tell you, it was Geraldo. I heard Geraldo the other night say, there's no way that you can elect a creationist to be the president of the United States. That is stupid to do that. I was ready to go through the television at him. But he, that's what he thinks. He said it with such such conviction 
that anybody that believes that that we were created here and and not evolution ha- is too stupid to be president of the United States. Now, I think he speaks for a lot of people. That there's wrong, there's something wrong with that, inherently wrong with that, and a lot of us creationists don't speak up loud enough and uh, don't have the information to even be able to talk to him. But he says they became empty in their speculations. They started developing worldviews and philosophies that left God out. Okay, well, it's what this is about. And their foolish heart was darkened. We used to call this black out of the soul. Okay? It's when uh, it's, a, it's like a black hole develops in the soul and it's trying to pull things in to give it a little bit of light, but it's pulling all the wrong, wrong stuff in. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's frequently what we listen to when we listen to political pundits try to analyze various situations. They think they know so much. And, you know, I, I'm not that smart a guy in a lot of ways, but I, I got a pretty good grasp of what the Bible has to say. And I know they're not in line with it. Professing to be wise, I know you cannot be wise apart from the wisdom of God. You want to learn wisdom, read the book of Proverbs. Okay? Fear of God is the beginning of all knowledge and, and wisdom. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Each rejection of God's Word builds scar tissue on the conscience, making it easier to sin and harder to change. First Timothy chapter 4. Makes it easier to sin and harder to change. First Timothy chapter four says the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times. It's 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 got later, latter is a better translation of this particular word. It's not at the end of the church age. It's going to happen later on. I, I find this interesting. This is the third to last book that Paul is going to write. And he's taught a lot about uh, uh, last days. And he's going to teach a lot more in 2 Timothy 3. And he says this is something going to happen between now and the last days. And he says men will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, we know from 1 John 4.1 that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. And we know that the believer cannot be indwelt by demons, but the believer can be heavily influenced by them. Unbelievers can be uh, indwelt by demons. Demon can give them information directly. And like Jude 3 said, there's certain people that have crept in unnoticed. They've moved in alongside other believers, and with them they bring a satanic worldview. And this gets spread. They come in, you know, Satan was disguised as an angel of light. His first name was Lucifer. He was an angel of light. He knows how to act like it. He knows how to present things. He's not just that red dragon uh, breathing fire and all that that scares people away. There was a song out a long time ago, uh, Lord, it's the devil. Would you look at him? He's got blue eyes and blue jeans. Okay, He just kind of fit in. To everything. Uh, somebody's knocking. The name of that song. Would you look at him? Lord, it's the devil. Don't let him in. <laughs> well, they let him in a lot. 
And it says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. What happens is, these individuals got in with demonic doctrine, infiltrated as the uh, wolves covered in sheep's clothing, infiltrated the church, brought this doctrine of demons in. And it says, uh, there are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, what we learn out of this is what is called scar tissue. When you keep saying no to God over and over and over, you develop a callus. That's what's meant by scar tissue, and it gets harder and harder to get through the callus. There's a real neat chapter, Phil Robertson, uh, Duck Dynasty, that great philosopher. He's actually a better theologian than a lot of them running around today. And he talked about... Uh, uh, one year after he uh, left Louisiana Lafayette or whatever it was where he was a quarterback before uh, was it Terry Bradshaw followed him up or something like that. And he uh, just ran around the woods with no shoes for three years. And his feet became so calloused, he, he didn't, it, heat didn't bother him, cold didn't bother him, rocks didn't bother him, glass didn't bother him. And he talked about being that the calluses on the feet were markers of callousness on his soul. So he was able to identify the fact that, hey, I got these things on my feet, I don't feel any pain whatsoever, where's my soul at? And this Holy Spirit started doing some surgery on the man. So he he started to see the light and became a... Uh, became, uh, Preacher, So, scar tissue develops when we keep saying no to what we know to be right. When the Word of God says this is the way you're supposed to live, this is the way we're supposed to live. We know there's certain things that are immoral. Certain things that are immoral. And if you keep doing things that are immoral, you're going to become callous to doing them. They don't even bother you. They're not, And then you're not going to confess them even. There's no... There's no shame in them because, uh, well, society accepts them, so why should I be ashamed of doing these things? Why should I be about ashamed about immorality? Why should I be ashamed about lying? Why should I be ashamed about uh, any number of things that just fill that vacuum and then they, they don't confess them? Why should I be ashamed about being an uh, arrogant elitist? Why should I be ashamed about that? It's just the way of the world. If I don't, if I don't love me, nobody else will. And I'm going to love me, and I don't care if anybody else does or not. I mean, you end up with scar tissue, and the scar tissue is detrimental to the body of Christ. The end result can be calling evil good and good evil. Now, turn to Isaiah five with me, if you would. <clears throat> Isaiah five, verse thirteen. He says, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Isaiah 5.13 My people go into exile for what? Their lack of knowledge. Now, was it available? Yes. Did they pay any attention to it? No. And their honorable men are famished. 
and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her den of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. He's saying that the, the people have, have accepted and embraced and loved the things of the world rather than the things of God. It's another way to, to say it. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud will also be abased. This is the judgment he's bringing on them. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. See, the Lord of hosts, if you think about it, would rather be exalted by his love because his love is so amazing. That's why he would, that's what he would rather have. But if people are going to live in an unrighteous way and abuse his love and abuse his grace, he's going to get their attention through judgment. And he says, the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. He'll manifest another part of his essence here. Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. See, this is what happened to Israel. Isaiah is writing to the northern kingdom. And God has said it's, it's enough. What has happened? You've loved the things of the world rather than the things of God. He says, Woe to those who call evil good, good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Does that sound familiar? Does any of that sound familiar? Now, if God is upset with His people for doing this, what do you think about the other ones that are not the apple of his eye. It's the doctrine of application. If God says, you're my people, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to keep you around. I promised you a land and one of these days you're going to be back in it. I'm going to restore you. He didn't promise us that at all. What makes us think we're so special? Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of the armies and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord is burned against His people. This is one of those prophetic perfects. It's one of those things that says that this is certain to happen. Now, there's always the element of grace that God has presented to His people Israel and to other people as well. Because uh, 
If those who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal, hear from heaven, I will heal their land. He is not talking about the United States. Jeremiah 18, he says, If any nation will humble itself and turn to me, then I will relent from the calamity that I was going to bring upon it. That's what he says about us. So, is redemption, restoration available? Yeah. But you don't do it by calling evil good and good evil. And to say that the Lord our God is did not create the heavens and the earth is blasphemy. That's what it is. And if that's held by a majority of people in this country, which it's a growing number, guess what? And if they're so stupid as to think we can't possibly elect somebody who believes God spoke and created these heavens, if they're that stupid, it's just the clock is ticking. To whom much is given, much is expected. No nation in the history of the world has been given what we've been given. Ever. And what do we do with it? We trampled His truth in the streets. On this account, the anger of the Lord is burned against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and struck them down. This is prophetic perfect saying that He is going... It's, it's not happened yet. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom. But it is certain to happen unless you read other passages that says there's a repentance. What if you got hammered and said, you're going to the electric chair? Of course, they've outlawed that. You're getting a lethal injection. Well, they're trying to outlaw that. You're up for capital punishment. Okay? Wouldn't you try and see if there's a way out around it? <laughs> Wouldn't you ask for mercy or grace or do something? That's part of what, what he's bringing them to. You are condemned, O oh man, unless you come to the only one that can save you. He stretched out His hand against them. He struck them down and the mountains quaked. And their corpses lay like refuge in the middle of the streets. For all this, His anger is not spent, but His hand is still stretched out. There's Isaiah talking uh, quite clearly uh, about calling evil good and good evil. So we start looking at those things. Everything we run into is, is the circumstances of life are tests and temptations. We can do things to honor God or we can do things to promote self or honor self or to just directly disobey God's Word. That's part of what we've learned about the lures of evil. Sometimes we get faked out of our shoes like Eve did. Sometimes we say, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. And sometimes we say, well, I'll take a little bit of truth, turn it around and use it for my benefit. All of those are classified as evil. Now, when we try, when we flunk the test, fall prey to the temptation, and we try to find happiness by other means, because that's often what happens when you fall prey to a temptation, you want it to fill the hole in your soul, it can become a frantic search and it can consume people's life. The oftentimes uh, counselors that deal with people who have addictions, they get move them from one addiction to another addiction. This is not solving the problem. We have a, a nature that's easily addictive to something. So the question is, is who are we going to be addicted to? And it ought to be Jesus. That's where we should that's where that energy and attachment should be spent. 
as a form of divine discipline, problem intensifies. It's something that's got under our skin. It keeps bugging us. It intensifies. It doesn't get better. This can lead to more harmful emotions. It can spread throughout the soul. Decisions in other areas of life start getting affected by it. The um, emotions and their actions, their acting out, take over. The Word of God's given less and less consideration. And then, a vacuum is there. I'm not going to say then a vacuum. I'm going to say there's a vacuum there all the time. What are we going to fill it with? That's, that's the question. If you keep filling it with enough junk and don't fill it with the right stuff, then it leads to uh, emptiness and a, and a blackout of the soul. The more we do things, these again are markers, the more we develop a scar tissue, making it easier to send, making it harder to change. The end results when you start calling evil good and good evil. That's where the problems are. Now, our fallen structure, you have three charts that are there, and that's why I put this thing up. <clears throat> we have basically uh, floors in the, these charts. First one should be our fallen structure. And we start down there at the foundation. The foundation of the fallen structure is doubting God. Whenever he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, and we think somehow he has, we doubt him. When he says, I got you a place laid up in eternity, okay, and I'm going to come get you someday and bring you back, we don't really believe that or think about it. We, we doubt him. When he says that I love you, so much, and this love will never be taken away from you. From you, we doubt him if we don't embrace that. So, <clears throat> whenever we doubt God, this is our overall attitude toward God, and this is the deepest story of the sin nature thing we've got. Because the sin nature doubts God, and inherently doubts God, doubts His word, doubts doubts everything. And if you doubt God, this King of Kings. Who is God? At least for a period of time, we are. So we become self-serving. We want to figure out how to just get by in this life. Now, if you follow that structure from the foundation into floor one, if, if I doubt God, and then I need you. I need you to fill this, this hole in my soul because if we doubt God, there's a pain. That goes with that. A pain of confusion. A pain of not knowing what to do. And so we're going to try to fill it. And we're going to say, I need you. Or we could say, I need it. Because oftentimes we try to substitute people with things. But I, I need you. But, you know, it. you make me feel good occasionally. But you don't make me feel good all the time. And when you don't make me feel good, I hate you. It's a response. Huh. And then I hate you because oftentimes that gets turned around and maybe I'm not good enough to love. So if I'm not good enough to love and I expect you to love me so I'll feel good about myself and I'm not good enough, then I must not be worth loving. So I hate me. These are, these are elements of, of despair. 
The deepest story is doubting God. That's underlying this whole thing. And if we find ourselves into this, i got to have these people to affirm me, these people to, to build me up, these people to do this, so I don't feel so bad about myself. That's the inside story, and this stuff's designed to protect us. These are the things we develop to protect us. We seek relationships, and we want those relationships that are there to, to build us up. We don't want any that's going to rub us the wrong way. And I let iron sharpen iron because that's, that's too difficult. So we decide we're going to figure out a way to protect ourselves and we're going to, we're going to find these, these, these relationships that, that will build me up. If they stop building me up, then off I go. That's, I'm going to leave it alone. And then if I need you, but you're not fulfilling my needs, then I not only hate you, but I hate me. But then I decide I'm going to survive. Now, sometimes at this point in time, it's where people say, I'm not going to survive anymore. And that's where they decide to pull the plug on stuff. And it comes out of sin nature is what it does. And they, the rationalization can be coming a lot of different ways, like I'm no good, I'm not worthy, I'm just tired of this life, uh, I might as well give it all up. And if they lose that survival thing, that's what they do. They go to stages of, of uh, suicide. And they can, that can happen rapidly. There's usually three stages of it, and a lot of times the first one develops. If somebody says something about it, you better pay attention to it. And your family, somebody mentions it, Pay attention to it. Don't just say, oh, they just kidding or something. Well, uh, make a deal out of it. Find out. Because they're basically doubting God. When, that, when they reach that stage, they're doubting God or they're trying to play you. Okay, They don't need to be playing you. It's unhealthy for both of you. So you, it needs to be dealt with. And I'm going to survive and here's how I'm going to do it. Okay? And this is some kind of human good thing or some kind of uh, uh, immoral thing. And this is how they approach relationships. They approach relationships uh, with a survival attitude. This is how I'm going to survive. This is how I'm going to get by. This is how I'm going to... You can't really do it, but you know I'll try to, to be around you. I need you. I hate you. I hate... I hate me, I don't like it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna survive it, and this is how I'm gonna do it. So this is how this is what they bring to relationships. Now if this is the way it starts, how will these things likely turn out unless God intervenes? Not real good. The approach to relationships, and that's the present story. See, coming from the inside out is a doubting of God. And when you doubt God, there's a pain that comes with it. And then you figure out a way to try and figure out a way to do this. But see, this present story is, I'm going to survive, this is how I'm going to do it, but it's a self-centered approach to life. Now, self-centeredness, a lot of different words for it. Narcissistic, that's whenever society finally views it as unhealthy. Okay, That's when they label it as a mental disorder and psychological defect. And they say, all right, they're just totally, completely self-centered. Pretty easy to identify as a rule. 
Okay, but this comes out of the fallen structure. This is part of identifying the lures of evil. Who are we in Christ? You're His child. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. You have been given an eternal dwelling place. You've been placed in the hands of God. How many of those things can can you name and, and think of? These are things that God has promised to us. Now, do we trust Him or not? That's what it boils down to. When we stop trusting Him, we fall into this fallen structure, and that's part of what leads to a a selfish um, way of dealing with life. Now, we're going to stop here and... and, um, you know, next next week we'll look at the we'll look at this again, then we'll look at the godly structure, and then compare the two of them together. But look at these charts. Try to make them a part of you, because how do we identify when we're not walking in the light? It would be helpful, right? <laughs> if we walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. It's a process, but it goes with walking in the light. If we walk is a third class condition. Maybe we will, maybe we won't walk in the light. So are we trying to walk in the light to please God? If we're trying to please God, we're becoming humble, unselfish, and sacrificial. That's becoming Christ-like. And if that's not happening, then we're probably functioning in this fallen, fleshly structure. Okay? And that's not going to bring about any happiness. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Looking for peace in all the wrong places. And Jesus is the answer to that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your amazing grace, for your tremendous love, for all you have poured out upon us. Thank you for letting us get an insight into ourself. And Father, I pray we will be able to use this in such a way that we might recognize uh, shortcomings and direct, get redirected toward you that we might walk in the light. I pray too that we will be open to be able to help others. If we see these problems come up, we'll have some idea and maybe how to offer them some guidance and some counseling and to walk along the road with them. Father, we pray that Indeed, you will let us use these that we might be your servants in a better way. And Father, we pray that we would use these that we might be able to serve you by serving others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.